Morning Glory America, it's Hugh Hewitt. That music means it's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. Once a week, we go high, they go low, the rest of the media, but we go very high, back to first principles, back to the origins of Western civilization and our wonderful constitutional republic this week with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, including brand new course on Western civilization, are available at hillsdale.edu for free, including in Primus. Their weekly speech digest, or their monthly speech digest, which you can get for free. I always recommend you give it for Mother's Day and tell your mom you paid for it. Hillsdale.edu, sign up for it. And all of our conversations dating back to 2012, uh, 2013, are collected at hughforhillsdale.com. Dr. On, good morning. Good morning, Hugh. How are you? I'm great. Now, because we're going to have to talk in this hour, which may be one of the most consequential hours we've ever spent. I'm going to have to talk about Scott Pruitt. I want to say at the beginning, he's my friend, and my son works at the EPA. That way, as you always talk about Hillsdale K through 12, you always point out your daughter works at one of them, and that's because we disclose, right? So yeah. that people can correct for the lie of the green. They can <laughs> they can say, well, maybe we're disposed to like them more than we are. I don't think it's the case in either case, but I always say it. Now, here is my proposition for you. We have been going through the Constitution. Article 2 of the Constitution begins, Section 1, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. Full stop. That's the first line of Article uh, uh, 2. Last night, our friend, Mark Levin, did a very edifying monologue on why Special Counsel Mueller works for the president, on why Scott Pruitt works for the president, on why the executive power there is no one who orders the president around. Can you expand on what the theory of the unitary executive means? Because I think it's at the heart of the fight with the administrative state. Uh, it, it centers on the word responsibility, which is a key word in two of the Federalist Papers, 68 and 70, written by Hamilton. And uh, Charles Kessler, a friend of mine and a wise man, says that uh, they use that term in this way, responsibility, in this way in the Federalist for the first time that you can't find an earlier text that does that. And what does responsibility mean? It means, um, um, it means you are accountable for what you do, uh, ultimately, to the people, and you are watched. Uh, now, you have a guaranteed term, short of impeachment, uh, but, and that means you have time, but that means that everything that happens to the executive branch no, there's no confusion about who did it. It just means, you know, the buck stops here, Harry Truman's great sign he put on his, uh, uh, on his desk. It wouldn't matter if he put that sign there or not. Everybody would know. And if you, uh, like there have been attempts in American history, in particular against uh, Lincoln and Andrew Johnson during and right after the Civil War, for Congress to more or less appoint a committee that would oversee appointments uh, to the executive branch, uh, and that means that the president could not fire somebody unless the Congress agreed. And Lincoln successfully resisted that, and Andrew Johnson, by the skin of his teeth, did. But uh, what that would mean if that happened was, then, you know, somebody, uh, who would I name as an example? Anyway, well, Trump's fired so many people, it's easy to find, it's easy, it's easy to come up with a list. Tillerson, yeah. Yeah, Tillerson, right? So Tillerson... Um, you know, he didn't win many hearts, right? I, I, in general, Trump is, he doesn't just fire people. There's a lot of upgrades that come out of this, in my opinion. And, and, uh, but, so Tillerson, you know, could have 
made his friends in Congress and on that committee, then the next thing you know, he'd be bickering in public with, with his supposed boss about who's doing what. And you wouldn't know who to blame. And uh, so, so it's very carefully contrived. Much of the burden of the argument in The Federalist about the executive is that it will lead to protection that there's just one of them. Just one of them, yes. And they are in charge. And so if the trade war goes well with China, it is because Donald Trump initiated it and followed it through. Larry Kudlow may explain it. We might need some additional explainers out there. But it is Donald Trump's trade policy. And if EPA successfully fights back at the clean power plan, at the waters of the United States rule, at the CAFE standards, and gets us out of the Paris nightmare... Uh, Scott Pruitt may have done it, may have made him very popular as he is with uh, the Heritage Foundation, with Freedom Works, with uh, the Americans for Prosperity, and a bunch of senators named Cruz and Rand Paul and James Inhofe. That doesn't matter. He works for Donald Trump, and if Donald Trump doesn't like him, he can fire him. And if Donald Trump likes him and the New York Times doesn't, he can keep him. And when it comes to the upgrades, Mike Pompeo at State, Gina Haspel to CIA, John Bolton arriving on Monday— it doesn't, what they do is important, but they all do it for the president. That's right. That's right. Uh, I, uh, if you read the New York Times, which I do pretty often, um, uh, they're often breathless speculating about these firings, but uh, they never seem to happen because the New York Times calls for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this, I got to read this to you. In the New York uh, Times, they're throwing the kitchen sink at my friend Pruitt, right? Yeah. Just, they're down to everything. And here's the latest indictment of Pruitt. Several senior staffers separately used the word toxic to describe the atmosphere at the agency, with its political appointees adopting a bunker mentality amid the questions about Mr. Pruitt's behavior. Some career civil servants at the agency many of whom have worked there through several presidential administrations and are dismayed over Mr. Pruitt's policies, appeared hopeful at the prospect of the administrator's downfall. I had to laugh, end of quote, Larry Arn. When you take over an agency with 14,000 people that's been run by Gina McCarthy and Lisa Jackson for eight years of power-grabbing, anti-constitutional imperialism, you're not going to like the guy who comes back talking about rule of law, are you? No, and... <laughs> And see, never mind that he's a friend of yours. That's the only thing I know against him. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's he is a thoughtful man, right? He's a he's a lawyer, and yet seems highly intelligent. <laughs> and and so he's uh, he's he, it's not just look at what he does, right? He's he's trying to follow the law, and the law is strong. Gives the federal government great powers in protecting the environment. It just doesn't give the EPA the power to make its own laws. That's it. That's it. And that's what really is the issue here. This, all this nonsense about the apartment, it, it's all just nonsense. It's absurd. It's really the administrative state and its clients in the environmental movement, and we know them well, uh, fighting back to regain control of the mothership, which they've lost the deck of. That's right. And see, remember this. The... the uh, what they will think, that's uh, what, the, what the clients that you just named will think when you say that is, yeah, it's being delivered into the hands of the clients in the corporations that want to pollute the, pollute the land. Well, maybe, but the real point is neither group of clients is supposed to control the EPA. It is, uh, the EA is to carry out laws passed by elected representatives of the people and enforced by an elective president who is accountable 
and therefore responsible. And is in charge of the EPA, which brings me to the second major point that Mark was making, Levin, last night. Mr. Mueller has special powers pursuant to regulations promulgated appropriately under the Administrative Procedures Act at the Department of Justice. They are not unlimited. He must answer to Rod Rosenstein, uh, Rod Rosenstein, because the Attorney General is recused. And uh, under those powers, he has made it known to the president that he is not a target of the investigation, but remains a subject of it, which in U.S. attorney speaks and prosecutor speak means we don't think you've committed a crime, but you're on the peripheries of this thing. But you haven't committed a crime by everything we know as of a week ago. That's the report. I don't think the president should sit down with an inferior officer, special counsel Mueller. I don't think he can be subpoenaed. I don't think there's any upside. I think they'll try and trap him in a law and then file a report with Congress, and Mark Levin is on the warpath about this. What do you think, Larry Art? Yeah, I don't. I agree. You know, Trump is a very cagey guy, and Trump is talking to two constituencies, and one is inside the Beltway, including Mueller himself, and the other is the rest of us. And he wants to demonstrate to the rest of us that he hasn't done anything wrong, I mean, the colluding with Russia thing is implausible, right? Um, it's, it, uh, it's, it, uh, you know, at one point there, Molly Hemingway wrote a very good uh, column about this in The Federalist lately. They, they were trying to style Jeff Sessions as an agent of Russia. And that's just not plausible, right? No, it's, it's not. It's not plausible that Trump would be that either. Uh, so, but Trump wants to demonstrate clearly that he's confident and he wants the people to know he didn't do this. He didn't betray their interest to the Russians. And he laughs at it mostly. But I agree with you that this thing about talking to Mueller, Mueller, whenever you say his name, uh, that, that uh, it might be a better policy to pour contempt on him. You know, he's just a prosecutor, right? I appoint all the prosecutors because that. If you don't have that, by the way, just remember, if there's a judicial or legal officer who can take the president out, effectively that person becomes the president. Which is why you cannot indict a president. We're going to come back to this. Again, Article 2, Section 1, Line 1. There's only one president. I'll be right back. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining me this morning on the Hugh Hewitt Show. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, that time of the week when I'm joined by Hillsdale President Dr. Larry Arn or one of his colleagues at Hillsdale, all things Hillsdale, at hillsdale.edu, to talk a matter of first principles or history. In this case, first principle, what it means to have a unitary executive. During the break, I went and read David Brooks. It's one of my favorite, but he's now engaged in uh, uh, Pruitt stomping. And I wonder if people understand, uh, Dr. Larry Arn, how engaged the left is uh, Tom Steyer is pouring lots of money into organizing attacks on all of Pruitt, uh, of Trump's appointees, not just Pruitt, for the purpose of, I think, deterring people from going into the government, basically. And they're going to do it to Gina Haspel, who's going to the CIA. They're going to do it to Mike Pompeo. They want to bleed everyone for a simple purpose. They never do it to the left. They didn't do it to Gina McCarthy or, or Lisa Jackson on their travels. They didn't do it to the uh, John Kerry and his trial. They, they just do it to us for a purpose of deterring people from going in. Well, uh, of course they do. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, the presidency is a big, powerful office. And uh, you need a lot of help. You've got to have a bunch of people. And uh, if, they, if the conditions under which those people work deteriorate, then 
you might not get as good a people. Of course, it could also work the other way. You might get better people. I don't see Scott Pruitt backing down. And, uh, you know, he seems to be a pretty tough guy. And all of this, you know, and just just think about his situation. I talked to Betsy DeVos about this one time. You know, she's in that big old building sitting up there at the top of it. And she knows, like, back when I talked to her, like six people in the whole building who came to help her. And uh, Scott Pruitt is surrounded by people, uh, many of whom mean him ill. And yeah. so that means that uh, uh, the donors who want to take him down, and David Brooks, I haven't read his column, they, they got plenty of sources. And uh, this, it, it, uh, yeah, I'm glad you started quoting that thing by Mark Levin today, because people should remember the constitutional point. Scott Pruitt is supposed to do two things. He's supposed to do what the president says, and he's supposed to do what the law says. And the art is to reconcile those two things. And, you know, I don't know of Trump giving anybody any orders to do anything illegal. So, so as long as he does that, he's doing his job, and he does it just so long as the president wants him to do it. And that's, that's why, and just remember the point about that, that's if these people got to pick who the president's uh, cabinet was, then these people would be responsible for their actions, the cabinet officers. But nobody elected these people to do that. In fact, their names are unfamiliar to most everybody. Right. And, and, and that goes back to why the framers set this up, so that responsibility and with it accountability would be vested in one individual. It's, by the way, why the president could fire Scott Pruitt if he, if he didn't like the way it was going or keeps him. He sends a message one way or the other, right? He Acting or not acting, he sends a message. But with Mueller, he's allegedly not allowed to fire him. He actually can fire him, but it becomes a political issue. And I've begun to think, and tell me what you think about this, I don't think the president's afraid of impeachment. And if you're not afraid of impeachment because you think, like Bill Clinton, you can't be convicted, you're going to be a different kind of president. You're not going to worry. In, in fact... All along, he's been a very different kind of president. I'm maybe late to this game about his indifference to the opinions of the collective empowered. Yeah, well, the sentence, I don't think the president is afraid, is generally true. (laughs) 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 It it is very remarkable, right? I mean, he just just think about his, his experience in politics. He was the darling of the press for months and months. What an unusual guy, you know. And, of course, they, a, lot of, a lot of them were calculating this guy could never win the general. We want him. He's the one to put up against Hillary. And, and you know, he's, but once he's the nominee, by the way, that stopped in a heartbeat, as it did for John McCain years earlier. Maybe John McCain was surprised. Uh, Trump seemed unfazed by it. And all this stuff since he's president is worse, and he seems unfazed by that. Completely. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. We turn to China after the break. What is going to happen next with the trade war? Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. I have to explain to my new affiliates, WQTK 92.7 FM, the North Country's News and Talk Authority in Ogdensburg, New York. WATN 1240 AM, North County's News and Talk Leader in Watertown, New York. WWLZ 820 AM and 101.3 FM, the talk station in Elmira, New York. 
and WWSC 1450 AM New York and the Tri-Counties Talk in Glen Falls, New York, that every hour at this time of the appointed hour of the week, I talk with Dr. Larry Arner, one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College, about big things, about big issues, and about old books, and about old writers, and about the ideas that endure. And Dr. Larry Aaron and I are old friends, although he is loath to admit it. And so we often veer into uh, uh, trying to uh, harm the other's reputation publicly. But uh, we also cover breaking news. Dr. Aaron, NBC News is reporting that the United States Treasury says it has sanctioned numerous Russian oligarchs, government officials, and company over malign activity around the globe by Russia, including in Ukraine and Syria, subversion of Western democracies, and malicious cyber activities. Uh, Mark Noller adding that the oligarchs are seven in number and 17 senior Russian officials, not Putin himself, uh, for the brazen malign activity and aggression against Ukraine and support for the Assad regime. Uh, earlier this week, Donald Trump said no one's been tougher on Russia than he has. And some of our colleagues in the mainstream media laughed at him and, and my friends at MSNBC. But the truth of the matter is he gave lethal weapons to the Ukrainians. He's got NATO to up its budget. And now he's hell on wheel on the sanctions. Yeah. It, uh, well, it's always, it's, it's possible. You know, the narrative is that Donald Trump somehow made a deal with some Russians to rig the election because they could do cyber stuff and... I don't know what else they're supposed to have done. Uh, that's always been implausible to me because it would be stupid, right? They're not. Uh, uh, tr- Trump set out and probably will return to the point that we ought to try to get along with Russia. And my own view, derived from long study of Winston Churchill, is you ought to try to get along with everybody because you're always going to have more enemies than you want. Uh, but having said that, look at these things, right? And uh, the, these. Russians, it, it is an oligarchy. What it, what it is, Russia is a despotism of a different kind now. And it's, uh, you know, the Russian people, alas, are given to that kind of thing. And they have elected him. And uh, it, it, they're just running riot around the world. And so he's going to try to stop it. And uh, also remember the background to all of this. When Donald Trump is a candidate for public office, he is for much larger defense spending. And that means our enemies around the world, and potential enemies, North Korea, enemy, China, potential enemy, Russia, potential enemy. Those are all places where the rulers stay in power through force. And that means they understand force. And so the idea that Russia would think it in its interest to favor Donald Trump in the election over Hillary Clinton, when Donald Trump says he's going to build up the military, which he is now doing, that's something in the background that's fundamentally important. And all these uh, stream of stories and gestures and, and charges and countercharges that go on day after day, just imagine that we were in, uh, say, to name a very noble country that is a great country, Belgium. Would anybody be taking notice if the Prime Minister of Belgium was saying things like this about, about uh, Russia or doing something to Russia? Belgium is not a powerful country. Right. So, so that, that thing, see, in the end, why is Donald Trump trying to build up the military? He wants the United States of America to be strong. You know, the, the master narrative uh, term has been coined by Ross Douthat at the New York Times. Very wise guy. And he's got a great new book out about Pope Francis. 
uh, and that Pope Francis is, in fact, causing deep divisions in the Vatican to change a church. You might want to read the uh, Mm. uh, interview I did with him yesterday, that he's a very divisive figure. But the master narrative of the conservative Catholic is different from the master narrative of the liberal Catholic. The master narrative of the left in the media is that, that Putin has Trump in his pocket somehow. But the master narrative of the facts is that $700 billion for the Defense Department is $700 billion. And getting rid of sequester is getting rid of sequester. And lethal weapons to Ukraine are lethal weapons. And getting NATO to ante up is getting NATO to ante up. And sending cruise missiles into Syria is sending cruise missiles into Syria. The master narrative of the facts is he's been hell on wheels on Russia, whereas President Obama lent over to Medvedev and told us and tell Vladimir that after the election, things will be easier. Yeah, that's a, you know, I always forget that thing. Thank you for bringing it up, because that is shameful. And and see, it's not shameful if, in fact, it's in the interest of the United States of America. It just isn't. And uh, uh, so, you know, because, of course, presidents make deals like that all the time. And that could even be a Machiavellian thing that Obama said to set up, up the Russia. He just didn't do anything about it. Didn't do that. Yeah. It all depends on things we don't know. But the media is interested in reporting a story and a narrative. And and there's value. There's money to be made in beating up on Trump. And there's money to be made in defending Trump. Thus, we have MSNBC and Fox. I'm not sure what we do about the real story. Because often we don't get the real story for decades, right? We don't understand what the heck is really going on at the Vatican right now. And we don't need to go. But we do need, and this brings me to the Atlantic. Uh, and the firing of Kevin Williamson. Are you familiar with the facts of this controversy? No. Well, Kevin Williamson, fine writer at the National Review, but he wrote a very controversial tweet that women should be hanged if they had abortions. Um, many years ago, it was a tweet. It's over the top. I don't agree with it. I'm sure you don't agree with it either. Uh, so the Atlantic got a fusillade of criticism from the hard left, and it kept up. So they fired him after hiring him a week ago. They fired him on the basis of this one tweet. What do you think about that? Well... I mean, first of all, they ought to have done their due diligence. But uh, it, it uh, yeah, so he shouldn't have written that. But is that a firing offense? Um, and also, uh, you, you, wouldn't you have to judge things like that generally? So I've, let me try to compare it to something I know. So I have a lot of faculty members working for me. And they have something in common with me. They say silly things sometimes. <laughs> so, so... If I fired them every time, that would be really bad. And, uh, and so, you you know, so like the proper comment is, that was silly. <laughs> and they, in my experience, they always say, yeah, you're right, it was. You know, and then you have your agreement, right? That, at least that particular silly thing we're not going to say again. So that's, there's a million things the Atlantic could have done apart from that. But just think how uh, weak that is and seems. Because whatever forces caused him to be fired, they have established control over the editorial contact content of The Atlantic. Uh, it's run by a very smart guy, Jeffrey Goldberg, who's a friend of mine. He'd been on the show this week after he did a rather revolutionary interview with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the new crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And I just think it's hard to be an editor these days, hard to be in the public eye because the amplification of the extremes that occurs online requires people to have very thick skins or just simply to ignore it, right? You know, you can just mute it. And that's basically what I think you have to do if you're going to be an honest intellectual. You're going to to explore the 
the logical arguments out there. For example, Facebook. Uh, I have you. You don't even use Facebook, so you have no idea what this controversy is about. Do you know what happened yesterday with Facebook? They announced that all two billion of the accounts, all every one of them that had ever been opened, the information had been sold, had been scraped. <laughs> All of them. And one of my law students to me yesterday took me to a place on Facebook and said, I went there and they know everything about me. They know I'm this age, that I'm heterosexual, that I'm dating, that I own this car, that I buy these things. And they've sold that information. Yeah. So, so if you use the new media, you're basically naked in the public square. And I guess young people are OK with that. Yeah, I wonder if they are. Um, uh, it uh, Those things last. And... Uh, you know, better if they didn't. <laughs> People need a private realm, and they they have a right to it. And see, a lot of these agreements, like I, I read a good column about Facebook's practices, right? And uh, apparently, if you give Facebook access to your contacts, what you think when you do that is that they're going to use that to make it easier for you to reach them. What they do is they treat them just like they've, tick the box themselves, and they find out everything about them. So if you're friended, I, probably you and me, Hugh, I don't use Facebook, probably you and I, they have all the same stuff about us just because somebody friended us. Yes. Uh, now, I do have a public space where they, the show's transcripts go up, but I don't, I don't use the messenger service. And what is most scary about this is people use the messenger service to write to other people on the assumption of privacy. And so I don't use it. It's not a threat to me. But for many years, people have used the messenger service to send Larry Arn a message from Hugh Hewitt, for example. The question I have for Jeff Zuckerberg next week is, did they let that go? That's like turning over everyone's emails and direct messages to the world, in which case everyone's compromised. And I, I, I really do think it's an existential moment when people realize if they give themselves over to social media, they're giving away their their private space, as you just said, and everyone needs a private space. Yeah, and then you know, do you just think in any job that you that you get, somebody's going to want that job, and if it gets to be a big enough job and the right kind of people want it, then all these things that you're talking about about Tom Stores and all these people after Scott Pruitt, there's material on everybody, and that can be used. And, and, and uh, yes, and for malignant purposes, and that. Yeah. That, that brings us back to um, uh, how to govern. These new entities exist out there, Google, Facebook, Twitter, um, to a lesser extent Amazon, which is really just a warehouse, but the social media organizations exist. Do you think they need regulation, Dr. Arn, in the way that the railroads assumed such concentrated power in the 1880s that the Interstate Commerce Commission was birthed in order to oversee it? Uh I do, but I wouldn't go about it the way we go about it now, because what, what we do now is appoint the federal agency and hire 10,000 bureaucrats, and they write detailed rules. I, would, uh, I, I think Congress should pass a simple law establishing privacy rights and liability, and then people can sue. And uh, I think the law needs to be very carefully written so that it's not just lawsuits against everybody rich and they're always profitable. But I think that uh, they, they, they should, like, uh, I'll say a word for Apple computer, the politics which I can't bear. And, uh, but their business model, you know, and they make a point of this all the time, 
is they sell you stuff that works really nicely and costs more than than the average, right? And they make their money that way. And then if they say that they're going to protect my privacy, I believe them. And uh, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them about any issue of public policy. But I believe that because they have contrived their company around that. And Steve Jobs, in, in whom I do have some faith, now gone. Tim Cook, his successor, yeah. Yeah, and they're, you know, and Tim Cook is a different kind of guy. And but let, Hold that thought. We'll come back to what, who we trust and why we trust them in the public square. Dr. Larry Arn, whom I trust, the president of Hillsdale College. 51 minutes after the hour, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening this week. And thank you, Generalissimo and Adam and Samurai Ben for making the show work. And to Dr. Larry Arn for doing the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. All of our conversations going back uh, many years, collected at Hillsdale, Hugh for Hillsdale.com. The breaking news from the Washington Post staff, the new economic sanctions, the Trump administration's most aggressive action against Kremlin-connected individuals to date, targets 17 government Russian officials, a state-owned weapons trading company, and seven people known as oligarchs, and 12 companies affiliated with them. It's the most sweeping set of sanctions ever. Uh, Dr. Arndt, and I also wanted to bring to your attention an, a story over at Bloomberg Businessweek, how Facebook helps shady advertisers pollute the internet. Quote, they go out and find the morons for me. And it talks about going to a conference of the people who sell just the junkiest stuff on the internet, and Facebook helps them find the, the sweet spots, the scam people, the targets, the, the marks. It's, it's a strange, crazy world against which there is this book about the Pope uh, to change the church, which I'll be talking about with Roth Douthat on MSNBC tomorrow at 8 a.m., in which he writes, you and I might be too optimistic that everything we trust about good institutions bouncing back might be completely wrong. What do you think? You know, I'm kind of expecting Cardinal Sarah to become Pope the Thir- Pius the Thirteenth and restore the Church and undo the craziness of Francis. I'm kind of expecting the, the 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 natural order of the Constitution to assert itself and beat back the administrative state. And Ross is a pessimist. Where are you on this? <laughs> well, uh, the future, though imminent, is obscure," said uh, Winston Churchill. So, first of all. You know, beautiful and wonderful things decline, and they are sometimes lost forever. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a story Churchill tells about a guy named Boris Savinkov who warned David Lloyd George that you got to do something about the, this Bolshevik thing. It's going to be destruction to, to the world. And, uh, and uh, David Lloyd George says, well, you know, the, the, every empire like that, and he mentioned Rome. And Savinkoff said, well, Rome was followed by the Dark Ages, was it not? So, <laughs> so, so you don't know. I mean, I think I mentioned Apple Computer. I don't like his boss because he's a partisan. I, it seems to me he lectures me about liberal politics in ways that I don't think he has any entitlement to do. But if Apple keeps making great stuff, they'll be fine. And that's, by the way, is a point that he makes all the time. And the Catholic Church, right, I mean, in the end, isn't its fate going to be determined by whether its claim is true that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Right. And I think that if that claim is true, that's dispositive. And if that claim is not true, then the Roman Catholic Church is going to pass away. You see, I, I, I you took the words. It's it's chilling. It's it's not chilling. It's it's funny. I said the same thing to my law students yesterday when we were talking about the First Amendment and the court. And if the Constitution works, eventually 
It's a close run thing. Mitch McConnell tweeted today his greatest, most significant achievement is the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch. If Justice Kennedy retires and another Neil Gorsuch comes, the Constitution will be at least on balance preserved for another generation of jurisprudence. And, but it's a close-run thing always, Larry Arn. Oh, yeah. And, and see, the, the courts have an outside power now because they have made themselves the partner of the administrative state where all the laws are made. And, and Neil Gorsuch is such a great appointment. And uh, I can tell you, Don McGahn, White House counsel, has said that the president intends that all of his appointments be like Gorsuch, that is to say, believing that the Constitution requires that the fundamental powers be in the popular, popularly elected parts of the government. So there's a plan there, and Trump is apparently signed on to it, right? And so, yeah, that's right, and that is a major achievement by Mitch McConnell, although I'll tell you that uh, I argue to him, and like him very much, uh, I argue to him the greatest achievement you could make would be to return the legislative power to the Congress, because that's the root of the problem anyway. One law in 10 or one law in 20 is actually passed through the Congress, and then the vast majority are made in a bureaucracy, the, the names of which are almost impossible to recall. That's the administrative state. It's the great, I, I don't use the term deep state because that's Iraq's secret police. That's the Gestapo. That's the people that come and knock at your door and take you away to the gulag. But the administrative is real and it's got its own interests and it's growing and it has to be, it has to be chopped back. It has to be brought under control. And that does require a Congress, but it requires more Republicans too. I mean, it just, you just can't do it with Democrats. They like it, right? That, uh, well, they, you know, I don't know. I actually have had friends of mine who work on this stuff for a long time, and some of them are in the White House now, and they say that there are Democrats who understand that the Congress has become unimportant. When, when this deal was made, just, just remember, in the, in, in the Federalist, Madison says, the reason separation of powers will hold is because each branch will have both a principle and an interest in protecting its authorities. The Congress gave away the legislative power. They thought they could manage this vastness they've created. Now this vastness ignores them. And that may cause a fundamental shift. Dr. Larry Arn, Hillsdale.edu. Thank you, my friend. 